Hello and welcome to Podularity. My name is George Miller, and in this programme I'm talking to poet and biographer Fiona Sampson about limestone landscapes. So I'm quite interested and moved by the interrelation, the moving between of rock and soil and, and plant and animal and human life. And that's extremely evident in limestone in a very pleasurable way. W.H. Auden wrote, When I try to imagine a faultless love or the life to come, what I hear is the murmur of underground streams, but what I see is a limestone landscape. Fiona too hears the murmur of underground streams. She describes at the start of her new book, Limestone Country, the shock, the epiphany of realising that most of her favourite places were made from, and in, and on, limestone. A cottage in West Oxfordshire, a hamlet in Perigord in southern France, the karst region of Slovenia, the city of Jerusalem. She writes, Really living in these landscapes means paying radical attention to how they behave. It means knowing their wildlife as well as ways of farming, observing how water and vegetation respond to the mineral facts of rock and soil, as much as how humans live in and with them. Responding to the mineral facts. That might be a good way of thinking about her book. When I met Fiona earlier this year, I began by asking her about this sensitivity to the geology beneath her feet. I'm not sure I'm really so geologically sensitive. I just experience it as such an overarching element of any particular landscape. I think that the material that buildings are made of, the formations of the landscape, you know, hills, scree slopes, rounded downs, whatever, are so undeniable and they have such practical bearing on human and natural life in those environments that it's a bit like thinking about those fundamental musical forms in poetry. I'm, I, I'm very interested in thinking from the foundations up. I don't think I'm particularly observant. I think it's rather the opposite. I think it's undeniable and I'm always amused when people say, well, why would you want to write about limestone? What does it matter? Well, it matters. You notice it too. You notice that you know these honeycomb villages are very pretty a picture book you notice that um there's wonderful gothic carving in this friable limestone in these old churches you know you notice it too it's just you don't give it this name i suppose is what i'm saying to that imaginary interlocutor i wrote down three nice adjectives from your from your very first couple of pages malleable soluble friable so i suppose what i was wondering was can you imagine yourself writing a book about granite or slate or is this something special? So it's not just happenstance that you happen to find yourself in limestone landscapes. There is something particular about the character that really speaks to you. Yes, those are balls. They all suggest, OK, they, it could be natural, the action of natural, of nature, on, of meteorology and so on, 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 on a rock, on landscape, and often it is. And that's very interesting because change and mutability is interesting by itself. But they also suggest there's a susceptibility to being worked by humans. And since I'm very interested in the dialectic between people and landscape in particular, people in environment in general, but particularly people in landscape, I'm very interested in the way they change each other and so their changeability. I couldn't write about granite because I, 
I don't have an intimate relationship with it. I do have an intimate relationship with limestone, which isn't purely elective in the sense I just have spent quite a lot of my life living in limestone places. But I've also spent quite a lot of my life living in slate places. And I therefore feel quite a strong personal relationship with it and feel a quite strongly characterised relationship with it. But it's not such a positive characterization. I don't like it as much. I find it tough, unremitting. I think it's hard to work. It, it fractures. It produces very dark towns. Rain-soaked slate is one of the most depressing sights in the world, it seems to me. So, yes, it's partly being able to speak from experience and it's partly being able to speak from enthusiastic experience. You talk about the particular plasticity of limestone and that's the fact that it can be worked or that nature can work it, that water can work it, that it can preserve fossils in the in the layers. Those are all attributes that appeal. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that sense that it's... I mean, the mere fact that it's a sedimentary rock, that it isn't a... There wasn't an all at once, there wasn't a volcano, there was an accretion over millennia. I mean, I think that's astonishing. Where we used to live was quite, you know, it's quite clearly seabed and, you know, just walking across the fields and just picking up, you could just pick up really visible, substantial fossils just as you walked, particularly if they'd just ploughed, so, you know, so the topsoil had been turned over. Just extraordinary to think of that as a seabed. I mean, and so literally tangible, this other fact of the seabed. And... Then, yes, I mean, I, I, I do love a varied landscape. I love declivities and chasms and surprising small caves and, oh, I don't know, elder trees growing out sideways out of a, out of a sheer limestone cliff because there's just enough give for the roots of this, that were a seed to, to really sustain a big tree. I, I find all of that very engaging. I think... Um, I quite like a kind of only connect view of life. So I'm quite interested and moved by the interrelation, the moving between of rock and soil and, and plant and animal and human life. And that's extremely evident in limestone in a very pleasurable way. And you've got this wonderful sensitivity to, to history and what you call the deep archaeology which I guess is the is the geology isn't it but in the in the chapter on England and you're in a little pocket of Oxfordshire where it, mm. where it meets Gloucestershire and Wiltshire there is quite a strong sense of loss of something a way of life that's that's gone you talk about the village being hollowed out and that there aren't any jobs to speak of it's it's about commuting and you'd say it's an illustration of what it once was. So There's a real sense of something having gone. Yes, because that intimate connection. Absolutely, because I, I, you know, I, for me, the primary, the sort of mind-changing book about um, landscape, which I read in my teens, was W. G. Hoskins. You know, the making of the English landscape. In that sense, that you can read the landscape, you can read back to prehistory, but you can certainly, certainly read back through, you know, the early modern and back. And I just do that all the time that's just part of my experience of kind of driving anywhere and so I am very moved by landscape as man-made even though I don't want it to be controlled and I don't want us to lose the wild I'm far from advocating that but I'm not so interested in the big heroics of wilderness I it's great that they're there but that's not my thing and I'm very moved by continuity in tradition and I'm very moved by 
making space for those things, even if you don't necessarily want to have to live like that anymore. And I think, obviously, moving to a farming hamlet in Perigord, because obviously French farming is, you know, they didn't have quite such a wholesale. They didn't have the clearance, you know, the clearances of the enclosures. They didn't have, there wasn't a destruction of French peasantry. There was a lifting up of French peasantry by the French Revolution rather than a clearing them off into cities in the Industrial Revolution. And so there's a, so far, there are many more family farms. There's much more family farming. Obviously, the countryside is less inhabited. It's less overcrowded. But a sense of, not a sense of, an actual encounter with proper farming lives where people can fully respect themselves and have a, a good life living off the land is really striking when the climate is so proximate as it is in France to the British climate. It's not like going off to North Africa or Latin America where you know everything, climatically everything is so different. You know, the mirror that's held up by a neighbour country is really striking and seeing that inhabited apparently uninhabited because you know less built over but actually much more inhabited much more used lived in landscape and then coming home to west oxfordshire and just this prairie farming the destruction of the environment the 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 almost willful destruction of you the refusal to coexist with the natural world and the suburbanization of the countryside. It's a tremendous sadness. And I think that it's, it's a loss in all sorts of ways, not just sort of in terms of deep meaning, but I just, I think that in alienating people from the actual working, living, changing land, which we, which we actually all live on, in fact, even in cities, means that decision-making becomes increasingly poor because it's made in an urban environment which sees everything non-urban as utterly other, as idiot, redneck, or picturesque postcard, and doesn't understand that, for example, trees are the lungs for all of us, and that, you know, farming feeds us, you know, that really has lost sight of those absolute basics. There's a sort of terrible divorce. Yeah, and I think it's a tremendous sadness, because I think that actually you know, the the constellations of the natural world are significant. And I don't think they're arcane. I think that they are significant and they're available to people, whether you've got education or not, if you have access to them. But if you don't have access to them, they're not available to you. Fiona, we've, we've been talking about various aspects of your work this afternoon. We've talked about reading poems and reading scores and reading the the letters and journals of Mary Shelley. Let me ask you in conclusion about the joy of map reading, because that's a different kind of reading from all those other ones. What 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 engages you about that? Is that something where you can really immerse yourself in a, a completely different kind of way of reading? I absolutely love map reading. I love it. It's a form of daydreaming. I love it because you know, I can read maps and I love reading them. I mean, that's to say they, just like a poem, they aren't simply something on the page for me. They tell me about a place. I do love reading maps of places I've never been. But I think there's also something which probably actually fundamentally has a relationship with music and poetry. That's to say it's something to do with reading form and shape rather than necessarily names. I mean, of course, I do look at the names of the places because they are part of what's there but 
uh, it's to do with a spatial relationship, which for me, certainly, you know, when I think about abstract form in time, it's, it maps beautifully onto temporal relationship and so on to poetic form and musical form. Yeah, I just think they're the most gloriously evocative things. I was talking to Fiona Sampson about her latest book, Limestone Country. It's published in a very elegant, small-format hardback by Devon-based publisher Little Toller Books. More information on their website. There are plenty more podcasts on a wide variety of subjects at podularity.com. And do check out this programme's sister podcast, The Hedgehog and the Fox. That's all for now, so until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.